You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR 855am. I'm James Whitmore and it's Sunday the 26th of July. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land we're broadcasting from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. You can stream our show online at 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue, where you can also find our podcast. And follow our Facebook page, Out of the Blue Radio, for updates. Today we're going to be taking a dive with ocean plants, from the kelp forests of Tasmania to the seagrass meadows of Western Australia. We're going to hear a sad story of decline, but also hear about some hope for the future. But first, some news from this week. On Monday, the federal government released the interim report of its review into the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, the EPBC Act for short. It's the main piece of law that protects Australia's environment, including by making sure that developments such as mining don't cause undue harm. But the interim review found that the state of the environment is unsustainable and that the law is ineffective. It found that the Act is not fit to address current or future environmental challenges. The government has responded that it will immediately start working on streamlining approvals. Environmental groups have called for the government to strengthen environmental protection and wait for the final report, which is due in October. We'll be right back after this short announcement. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we We are are from from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Out of the Blue on 3CR 855 AM. In the past couple of decades, 95% of the giant kelp forests off Tasmania's east coast have disappeared, and scientists say that climate change is responsible. But what can we do about it? Dr. Kane Layton is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at UTAS. He's been working on a project that's attempting to restore kelp to the ocean where they used to live. I spoke to Kane recently on Zoom. So, Kane, 95% of kelp forests in eastern Tasmania have disappeared over the past several decades. That's an astonishing figure. How did it happen? Yeah, that's right. So this, is, this 95% figure is specifically in relation to giant kelp forests. So we've got a few different species of kelp uh, in Tasmania, and it's really the giant kelp that we've lost 95% of uh, on the east coast over the last several decades. And this species is really, really tall, you know, like, six, seven stories tall, you know, 30 metres. This creates these really, you know, these proper underwater jungles. And those losses are largely attributed to climate change and specifically changing oceanography. So that's uh, the East Australian current, which flows down the, the coast of mainland Australia, flows uh, southerly. It's a warm water, nutrient-poor current, and it's moving into Tasmania 
uh, further than it did traditionally. And, you know, the giant kelp really doesn't like that warm nutrient pool. So how does kelp actually die? Does it get too hot or you said it's nutrient poor waters or does it get eaten? Uh, so the giant kelp in this instance, it just kind of gets too hot. It just, it's just uh, what we call thermal stress or temperature stress. Uh, the nutrients do play a part as well. Um, if they're, they're kind of stressed for nutrients, if, they, if they're kind of borderline for the amount of nutrients that are in the water, you know, they're kind of struggling on that front anyway, it does make them more temperature uh, sensitive. So it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's very kind of um, physiological. They literally just can't handle the heat and they die. So the East Australian current has not only brought warm water south into Tasmania, it also brings uh, animals with it and larvae of those animals. And some of those larvae include, or some of those animals include uh, the long spine sea urchin or Centrostephanus rodgersii is the scientific name. And that species originally from New South Wales has become a real problem in Tasmania. And it's eating a lot of our kelp forests. Now, giant kelp were really on the way out before this urchin became a problem. So again, it was more the ocean warming and climate change specifically that was the driver behind the giant kelp forest loss. The urchins certainly didn't help, but, but you know, they weren't the primary cause. The urchins have primarily been impacting our common kelp forests, which is that shorter species that, is, um, that has replaced a lot of the giant kelp in Tasmania. That uh, reminds me of Californian kelp forest where obviously otters are celebrated as kind of kelp guardians. Does Tasmania have similar kelp guardians? Yeah, we do. So I'd say here it's really large uh, rock lobsters. And that's, so those, rock, those large rock lobsters are really the only predator for these really large long spine sea urchins that are moving into Tasmania. So the fact that we've kind of uh, overfished a lot of these really, really large rock lobsters allowed these urchins to kind of take a, to, to get a hold here and to really flourish once they reached our waters. So that's that kind of predator herbivore interaction that is somewhat similar to uh, the otter, kind of the otter system that you find in places like California. So you're involved in a project that wants to restore giant kelp forests. How are you doing this? Yeah, that's right. So I, one of the key parts of restoration is you have to uh, alleviate or at least kind of understand the driver or the reason behind the loss of the habitat in the first place. So in specific to giant kelp, like I said, it's climate change. So we have to, that's not something we can obviously fix in the short term. So we have to kind of think a bit more creatively, a bit of outside the box. You know, how can we help giant kelp be more adapted to these modern conditions that climate change is creating? And then that's obviously going to help our restoration efforts because it just doesn't make sense clearly for us to go and plant any old giant kelp because the water is still warming and they will just die. So what we're doing, you mentioned that we've lost, you know, 95% of giant kelp in eastern Tassie. That 5% that remains is still spread across basically the whole range that it used to live. Um, and they still look relatively healthy. They're not bleached. They still grow pretty tall. Uh, they still produce babies. They just don't create those really thick, large, dense forests they used to. You know, it's scattered individuals, maybe two or three in a single bay, maybe, you know, no bigger than your lounge room or your dining room table. So what we've done, we've gone out and sampled from those remnant patches, and then we can test those giant kelp in the lab to see if 
just through basically natural selection and random variation, if some of those remnant giant kelp are more tolerant of warm water. So exactly the same way that some humans are taller than others, some giant kelp are naturally just more tolerant of warm water. And then what we do, we can breed up those kelp that we kind of call super kelp, and they're the ones that we can then plant back into the ocean. And obviously because they're more tolerant of warm water, it kind of gives them a better chance. So how's the project progressing? Uh, so just like really everyone around the world at the moment, we have been slowed down quite a lot by COVID-19. Uh, but the, we've managed to do a couple rounds of testing for these super kelp in the lab. And we have found kelp that are far more, uh, giant kelp, we have found giant kelp that are far more tolerant of uh, warming waters, you know, far more tolerant than the average giant kelp in Tassie. So that's a real nice kind of sign that we're on the right track and that there is the potential within that remnant uh, 5% for us to use them in restoration efforts. So we're at the stage now where we're breeding up a lot of those giant kelp, those super kelp in the lab and hoping to kind of get back in the water as soon as possible to plant them. We've already done one little round of outplanting and that was at the end of last year. And we were really just trialing a few different methods because it's really pretty tricky actually to plant these kelp on the reef, on the seafloor, because we're not planting adults, we plant them when they're still at the juvenile stage. So they're microscopic, basically, or maybe only you know, a millimetre or so. So we trialled a few different methods. Uh, one was successful and one wasn't. And then you know, we haven't really been able to obviously go back to those sites and monitor them over long term because of the COVID-19 shutdown. Uh, but yeah, so that's what we're really hoping to do in the next few months is not only plant out a few more kelp, but be able to go back and check on the ones that we planted already. And how long does it take for these microscopic kelp plants to grow to their full size? Luckily for us, they grow really quickly. Um, you know, they can reach kind of maturity. So the age that they can start to reproduce within a year, potentially, you know, under ideal conditions. So that's really good. That means that obviously the kelp that we plant now by next winter, which is kind of the reproductive period for giant kelp in Tassie, by next winter, they might be almost ready to start producing some of their own juveniles. And that's the real secret to restoration is it's just not going to be sustainable for us and to permanently go out and keep planting giant kelp. What we really have to do is kickstart the natural cycle uh, and get the kelp forest, get the giant kelp forest kind of um, producing its own babies and it's kind of supporting itself. So really it's um, us planting the first generation and hoping that that's enough of a leg up that then the second and third generations and so on can kind of support themselves. So what's the hope here? Are you hoping that you'll actually be able to restore the full 95% of the giant kelp that disappeared um, to its previous health? We've lost such a massive amount of it that in the, you know, even in the medium future, I don't think that's possible. The project at the moment is very much about laying a foundation to kind of see, look, can we restore some relatively small areas? Can we get that kind of foundation, that foundation of knowledge and the foundation of the skills and the methods that you need to restore some small areas? And then once we've done them, we can then start to think a bit more strategically about where we put other patches and maybe getting community groups or industries or government involved to start planting some of their own patches. And then that'll be the real tipping point to how we start to, uh, what we say, upscale. So, you know, creating and translating some of those small patches into 
uh, restoration across an area of Tassie, like you said, that's kind of similar to the scale that giant kelp used to grow at. But at the moment, it's small scale. It's about kind of, you know, walking before we can run and creating some of that foundational knowledge. Then, you know, in the future, we can look to upscale. Mm, testing the waters. Um, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> and do you know, is there any indication from the lab work that you're doing about how tolerant these super kelp um, actually are? Could they conceivably survive the climate change projections for later in the century for eastern Tasmania? So eastern Tasmania is actually a global warming hotspot. So we're warming about four times as fast as the global... The waters in eastern Tasmania are warming about four times as fast as the global average. So, you know, we're on a really rapid warming trajectory. And even if we, you know, magically were able to get carbon emissions down to zero overnight, that trajectory is still, you know, on an upwards path. It's going to take a while to come back down. Uh, so it's hard to say exactly when that warming will stop and therefore that kind of makes it tricky to answer the question but what we do know is that the kelp that we've tested in the lab some of the kelp we've found is surviving at temperatures up to around 24 degrees which is you know that's way beyond what we expected we actually grew them at that temperature kind of hoping that that would be the temperature that killed them all because from an experimental point of view it's nice to have an end point, basically, an area where you know, okay, the kelp plant, the giant kelp aren't going to grow past that point. And for us, that was 24 degrees. But in fact, we even had some still growing at 24 degrees, which is basically the highest um, temperature that's ever been recorded for giant kelp to grow at. And really, giant kelp also occurs elsewhere around the world, and it doesn't grow anywhere else warmer than about 24 degrees, which is really incredible. So that does give us some hope that, you know, the activity that we're doing at the moment will buy us a bit of time as we simultaneously kind of get a handle on carbon emissions, which is really the, the fundamental problem we have to solve here. Um, but we're hopeful that that range of kind of thermal tolerance or warm water tolerance that we found will buy us that time that we need. And 24 degrees is almost inconceivable in Tasmanian waters. <laughs> well, sadly it isn't, it isn't. You know, we get we get to 20 these days in summer, we get to low 20s in places. Uh, back when, you know, a couple of decades ago, that would have been inconceivable. So scarily enough, we're not that far away from 24 degrees. All right, so something that's also part of this project is permaculture or farming kelps. What's the goal there? Yeah, so permaculture is just really kelp aquaculture or kelp farming. And the goal there is to, uh, you know, there's um, so many amazing products that seaweed and kelp especially can offer us. Uh, so the idea is that we can, uh, you know, create new business opportunities, new economic opportunities in, in a place like Tasmania. Uh, we can help people transition to a more plant-based diet, which is, you know, really what one of the key things we need as we move forward. Uh, again, that'll kind of help with carbon emissions. And, you know, some of that plant-based diet doesn't have to be land plants, it can be, you know, seaweed, plants from the sea. And that includes kelp. So we can eat the kelp, uh, we can feed it to livestock, like cattle, for example, and that kind of takes some of the pressure off some of those land uh, agricultural practices. And really the beauty of growing kelp is uh, you don't need fresh water, like you do obviously to grow a lot of the crops on land. You don't need fertiliser. In fact, kelp will absorb a lot of the nutrients and, you know, it gets fertiliser just from the ocean. So it cleans the waters as it grows. It actually takes out those nutrients 
and helps uh, helps clean up our coastal environments. So really, there's so many positives to growing uh, kelp in kind of a kelp farming setup, uh, from products to the actual potential environmental benefits of the, the farm itself. All right, I just want to ask you, how did you come to be a kelp researcher? Ah, so that's quite... I, I guess like everyone else, I wasn't particularly interested in seaweed growing up. I was always interested in uh, natural environments and the ocean. You know, I really loved bird watching and fishing and walking on the beach and, you know, snorkeling in rock pools. But I was more interested in kind of the creepy crawlies that live within, uh, live within seaweed and live within kelp forests. So stuff like lobsters and abalone, starfish and sea urchins. And I moved to Tasmania to do my PhD and was talking to a few potential supervisors about projects. And one came up and said, look, I've got this really awesome project. It's well supported. There'll be lots of diving. And it's about studying kelp forests, seaweed. And I kind of went, yeah, no, thank you. Don't really want to study seaweed. Bit boring. I'd like to study something else. But having a bit more of a think about it, I thought, well, you know, maybe this project is really well supported and I'll get to be out in the water a lot, you know, diving. So maybe while I'm studying the kelp forest, I can kind of do some sneaky study on the side and look at some other stuff. So I decided to accept the project and we started and I just found that the more that I learned about these incredible systems, the more I just came to appreciate them. And, you know, I'm really, yeah, incredibly passionate about them now. And I'm, you know, a real, it's kind of silly to say, but I'm very much a seaweed nerd now. That was Kane Layton from Utah's talking about giant kelp forests on Tasmania's east coast. Stick around because after the break, we're going to be talking about another ocean plant that plays a huge role in dealing with climate change. But we're going to go to a song first. This is Mixed Bag by Innocent Eve. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. Isn't it something? Isn't it neat? Mixed bags of lollies are the greatest treats. So why, oh why can't our rivals see that a mixed bag of people can be just as sweet?
3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. That was Innocent Eve with Mixed Bag. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. Our next guest is Christian Salinas, a PhD candidate at Edith Cowan Uni who studies seagrass. As we're about to hear, seagrass meadows are incredibly good at storing carbon, which means they could play a vital role in combating climate change. But in a recent study, Christian and his colleagues found that 161,000 hectares of seagrass have disappeared from Australia in the past 70 years. The amount of carbon lost is equivalent to 5 million cars, or adding 2% to Australia's emissions each year. I spoke to Christian last week to find out why the seagrass is disappearing and what we can do about it. So why has the seagrass been disappearing? Well, basically, they have like different impacts like we categorize in two kinds one like for example that direct impact that they just destroying directly all the seagrass areas we are meaning that for example when they have these coastal constructions they building dairies and also the moorings but also we have the indirect impact that is for example all this nitric input that change the water um, the water conditions and also the seagrass cannot adapt like like quickly to that and they start to die and also we have like nowadays a really big issue is climate change for all these heat waves that are occurring now we have a big example in sharp bake when in 2011 a heat wave just hit all the area of sharp bay and kill a lot of seagrass is one of the biggest losses of seagrass around the world reported at the moment. And so seagrass is often called blue carbon because it stores carbon like forests on land. How does seagrass store carbon? Well, uh, blue carbon basically is a term that refers to the carbon that is captured by marine coastal ecosystem. Uh, that means seagrasses, mangrove, or salt marshes and curating, they start to uh, talking about maybe seaweed. And they're important because the, this ecosystem, as you say, they capture carbon. And this capture, this capture is massive. It's 30 to 40 times more carbon than the terrestrial ecosystems. So that means that the, to find the carbon storage in one square meter of, of seagrasses, we will need about 30 to 40 uh, 30 square meters of forest. 
And this marine ecosystem and extremely efficient in capture carbon out of the water column, uh, turning into the plant's material and then boring it in the soils, where it can be like storage for thousands of years. There's a lot of time there. And this is the key, because the key of all this is that the soils under the seagrass are low in oxygen. And where all the and and the degradation of the carbon and other organic matter is really low or maybe cannot happen. So what can we do about this destruction of seagrass? Pretty much it's like the big uh, war is conservation. That we are basing maybe in two kinds, like the conservation of the seagrass can be the, the protection of the seagrasses that we already have. And we know that they storage a lot of carbon that's been for millennia years ago. And also they are start they are still sequestering carbon. So it's not just like they just started the carbon there, but they just all the time they just like catching a carbon around. So they storage more and more and more carbon. And pretty much that is the more efficient. So that means that we need to take care of the cigarettes area that we have around, like like policy makers, like make sure that we need to develop some projects uh, in coastal areas, how they're gonna measure the impact of the seagrasses or, or what they're gonna do to prevent the, 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 the loss of the seagrass areas when they doing all these like coastal developments. And also another one is the restoration of seagrass areas. This point more tricky because they need a lot of studies and all the seagrass species like are really good at the moment to restore areas. But if it's successful, that project, well, it's that mean that you're gonna start to accumulate in a couple of years a lot of carbon. And also, yeah, the sequestration is gonna start to happen mm. uh, with more carbon around. So I'm kind of curious about what seagrass is, because seagrass is actually a true type of grass. Does it have flowers? Yeah, that's right. Seagrass are flowering plants that live in the ocean, basically. And they are they, they can find around the world, not just in Antarctica, they're not finding anything yet. But yeah, basically they have flowers, they have fruit, they have roots. Like basically like a like a seagrass. Like a sorry, like a normal grass. Very interesting. All right, Christian, I just want to ask you, how did you come to study seagrass? That is a really tricky question, but basically I started my studies in Colombia, where I'm from, uh, and I studied with DNA and fishes, but well, things in the night happens, and I start to work with the government with coral reefs and in mineral scale with seagrasses. And I start to check that nobody was like putting too much attention to seagrasses. And I start to like digging deeper and found that they are really impressive. They have a lot of eco ecological services. Uh, what does I mean with these ecological services? There's like direct and indirect benefits that human can take for them. For example, that is this carbon capture capacity to mitigate climate change. Uh, or example is, for example, the prevention of erosion in beaches. Oh, or even that they keep a lot of fish and seafood commercial species living there and also they are nursing for a lot of the species that they just come 
Larry going and leaving the, the coral reef. And even they also filtering like pollutants and even they reduce, reduce, sorry, reduce the exposure to bacterial pathogens in the water that can be just rich humans. So it's a lot of things that like nobody's putting attention to the seagrass and they have a lot of potential to help humans that start to catch my attention and then just like yeah I always like my goal was like doing something related with help with climate change mitigation and I found like this carbon storage capacity in seagrasses is amazing and can put it in this carbon credit scheme and the best is like with this carbon credit scheme can provide some money and this money means that they're gonna start to protect the seagrasses because they're gonna be some economical benefits on that. That was Christian Salinas from Edith Cowan University. And thanks to Kane Layton from Utahs for talking to us earlier about giant kelp. You've been listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. Catch up with all our episodes at 3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue and follow our Facebook page, Out of the Blue Radio, for updates. Hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next week. Stay safe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.